Okay, Second Chronicles chapter 5. When all the work that Solomon undertook for the house of Adonai was finished, Solomon brought in the things David his father consecrated, the silver, gold, and all the furnishings, and put them in the treasuries of the house of God. Then Solomon gathered to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, and the patriarchal leaders of the children of Israel, in order to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of Adonai from the city of David, which is Zion. All the men of Israel gathered together to the, to the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the Ark, and brought up the Ark and the tent of meeting, along with all the sacred furnishings that were in the tent. The Levitical Kohanim brought them up. Meanwhile, King Solomon and the entire congregation of Israel who gathered with him before the ark, were sacrificing so many sheep and bulls that they could not be counted or numbered. The Kohanim brought in the ark of the covenant of Adonai to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the house, into the holy of holies under the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim covered the ark and its poles from above. Now the poles were so long that the ends of the poles extended from the ark could be seen in front of the inner sanctuary, though they could not be seen from outside, and they, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed there at, at Horeb, where Adonai had made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And it came to pass when the Kohanim came out of the holy place, for all the Kohanim that were, were present were, had consecrated themselves without regard to divisions. All the Levite singers, Asaph, Hermon, Jeduthun, their sons and their relatives, dressed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, were standing at the east end of the altar, and with them were 120 Kohanim blowing trumpets. Then it came to pass that when the trumpeters and singers joined, as one to extol and praise Adonai. And when the sound of the trumpets, cymbals, and musical instruments, and, and the praise of Adonai, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever, grew louder, the temple, the house of Adonai, was filled with a cloud. The Kohanim could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of Adonai filled the house of God. Thank you, Tracy. Last Shabbat... We were, Joy and I were reminded of some reasons to give thanks. One of those being that our congregational mishpacha has been generous from way back. And that's a fact um, that every so often I step back and say, Thank you, Lord. There's, there is a spirit of generosity at Yeshua Tzion, and it's reflected in how we give, especially to special guests. And um, we are also wanted to give thanks to the Lord that he has been faithful. Um, the celebration wasn't so much about Joy and I or James and Linda. Uh, if you weren't at the uh, celebration let me point out that uh, they were co-founders along with Joy and I. They had prayed for five years that God would begin a messianic another messianic congregation here in Denver. And um, 
lo and behold, he did. So all that as a word of appreciation for who God is and for what he's done here over the last 25 years. And it was a great deal of fun. Um, but part of it, of course, is the fact that we consistently, every Shabbat, uh, endeavor to make this a warm place, not just for our congregational mishpacha, but first and foremost for the Lord. Because the Word of God tells us that as we prepare a place for the Lord, then He shows up. We see that consistently throughout Scripture. And that really is, first of all, what our being here is, is all about. First of all, our corporate relationship to the Lord, our thanksgiving, our praise. And so I wanted to pause for a moment and just acknowledge that and ask the Lord's blessing as we look into, into his word. Father God, we acknowledge you, Avinu Malkeinu, for who you are and for what you have done with us during those 25 years. We thank you, Lord God, that you have sustained us, encouraged us, strengthened us, and uh, challenged us, Lord God, to persevere, reminding us that because you are faithful, that we need to be faithful as well. So, Lord, we give you the honor and the glory for that. We pray, Lord God, that this word from Chronicles, Lord God, would touch our hearts, that each of us, Lord God, would hear from you and know what it is that you have in mind for our lives individually, for us corporately as a mishpacha. We give you the honor and the glory and bless your name, Yeshua's name. Amen. So what uh, we see here in Chronicles is that this was a party. Uh, as you read uh, not only chapter 5, but chapter 6 and chapter 7, uh, the scale, the proportions are mind-boggling. Um, in fact, if you do the math on some of this and, and look at the number of sacrifices that were brought, you think to yourself, okay, this is really more than I can get my arms around. But in terms of the number of animal sacrifices and so on, um, but the big picture is the fact that the temple is being consecrated. It will be, we will see it in chapter 7. But here, first of all, uh, what takes place is the bringing of the ark. Now, let me pause for a minute and give you a little bit of background. Uh, the ark of the covenant, and I'm going to show you a picture in just a moment, uh, a schematic. Uh, the ark of the covenant was basically a box. Nothing special about it, and uh, I brought my trusty uh, measuring tape to help out here. So, the Ark of the Covenant was uh, 45 inches long and about... about 27 inches high. Nothing 
particularly spectacular, other, of course, other than it was overlaid with gold on the outside and on the inside. We'll talk more about what was on top of it. Um, but think about it. When we consider the fact that God created this universe, and according to astronomers, uh, the number of galaxies is incalculable. In other words, in plain English, we really don't know how many galaxies there are. And each galaxy um, is a million, several million uh, miles, several million light years. So we're talking numbers that are frankly beyond each of us. I mean, how do you, how do you get your arms around uh, trillions of miles? So God created all that, and yet um, he is willing and eager, in fact, as we will see momentarily, he's eager uh, to dwell, to hang out with his people, and his presence is shown in this little box. And it simply tells us that God is so eager to connect and to have people come to know him, each and every individual out of these 7 billion people, that he is willing to go to great lengths to limit himself so that people would understand and be able to relate to him. So the Ark of the Covenant um, was in Jerusalem for about uh, 40 years or so. Um, and um, in order for the ark to be installed in its proper place, a temple had to, to be built. And so the temple was built. Uh, it took roughly about 11 years or so. And here the people are preparing and are bringing the ark of the covenant into the Holy of Holies. Um, and what we will see is that the results are spectacular. Because what happens is that the people do, do the work, the practicalities of building the temple, the stones, the bricks, the mortar, the, um, uh, the altars, and so on. And then they wait. And this is so true of how we expect reality, spiritual reality to take place. We do what we do in expectation that as we pull back, God will show up in a major way. So wanted to show you a slide of the ark, talk a little bit about it. And if I can have the lights for just a moment. So this is one person's um, vision of what the ark looks like. Um, I have seen a number of other reconstructions of what the ark looks like. Uh, this seems to be reasonable. Uh, again, we're looking at roughly, uh, not quite four feet this way, and roughly about two and a half feet this way. Um, notice that there are rings at each corner, um, and through the rings, the poles were inserted. And um, the poles had to be there all the time. You could never take out the poles. 
the ark could never be transported any way other than by lifting it through the by by taking these poles and lifting them then above you have what in old english has been called the mercy seat and this goes back about 600 years for some reason one of the translators decided to call this the mercy seat why well because um here between these two cherubim kruvim um god's presence dwelt and and that's why we see in the, in the book of exodus chapters 29 28 and 29 he says to moses construct the ark this way have the cherubims facing each other and and i will dwell my presence will dwell uh in between these two cherubim now again remember that god uh, as solomon put it this way the heavens of heavens cannot contain you in other words you're so uh, massive you do, you you are omnipresent and yet you choose to limit your presence uh, to this one particular place it doesn't mean that God is not uh, present elsewhere, but for the purpose of Israel's worship, God limited Himself there, and so the the term the mercy seat suggests that this is like um, the the seat of of a king where people would come in supplication do you know the ancient the ancient kings they would come and people would would prostrate themselves and and ask for all kinds of favors so this would be roughly uh like that um the short version is that the hebrew word for this what really is just a lid is called a kaporet and uh people have come up with all kinds of translations for that uh, mercy seat being one of them uh, atonement lid is another one uh, because this really was a lid it was it was lifted and here inside um, were the tablets of the covenant uh, the two stone covenant uh, two stone tablets and uh Again, people like to speculate, and everybody's convinced that they know what was written on the tablets. And when we see the Lord, we will know for sure. Uh, people think that the Ten, ten um, Commandments were on the tablets or some form of the covenant. We really don't know for sure. But again, this ark represented the presence of God. Again, remember that this is just a box with a couple of angels on it. It's pretty spectacular in one sense because uh, the lid and the angels were pure gold. But again, um, it was just a box. And unless God was associated, connected, dwelling somehow in this, then it would be nothing more than a box that you have uh, at home obviously less ornate. Um, but this had to be in the Holy of Holies in order for the temple to be established. And so what we see here in chapter 5, I'd like to have the lights, please. What we see in chapter 5 
here is that the ark needed to come and it needed to follow precise instructions. Remember what happened to the individual who wanted to help God out and when the ark first came to Jerusalem and it was kind of wobbly and he reached out and touched it and he was zapped because he did something he had no business doing. Um, so people are bringing this ark from the location in, in southern Jerusalem, which is where it was, and bring it into the temple. Now, to step back for a minute, you're probably looking at this and say, okay, that really has nothing to do with me. Um, we don't know what the ark is. According to Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's someplace in, um, in the... Uh, basement of one of the U.S. buildings or according to other folks uh, it's somewhere in Ethiopia um, I have deep conviction that God alone knows what the ark is but the point is simply that the ark is representative of the presence of God and the presence of God dwells where his people are. And what you find th throughout the tabernacle and the temple, God had one basic goal in mind, and that is to restore what was broken in the Garden of Eden. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve used to hang out with God in the afternoon, the cool of the day, and they heard the sound of God walking. It's not as if, you know, he literally has feet, but his presence, the wind, the ruach, coming uh, at the garden uh, was something that they experienced each and every single day. And then because of sin, that was broken. And what you see throughout the Torah is that God has been working to restore that through the tabernacle, through the temple. And at some point, humanity, human history will come to such, a, an, uh, to such a place where we will not need a temple because God's presence will be with us fully and completely without any limits. And for us, the presence of God is what life is about. Because when God shows up, everything and everybody is transformed. Until then, what you have is a box without a whole lot of significance to it other than the fact that it looks very pretty. It's spectacular, it's golden, and so on and so forth. And so, on a spiritual, to take it and, and um, to extrapolate, you and I, who are followers of Messiah Yeshua, are also like these Levites, we also carry with us the presence of God wherever we go. You may not think of yourself in that, in that vein because you look at yourself and you think, who am I? You know, I know my faults, I know my sins, I know where other people are, and the notion that I carry with me the presence of God whoosh, flies over me at, at Mach 15. But the Word of God tells us, to all of us, each and every one of us, who have a living 
connection, living relationship with God, that we too are like these Levites who carry the holy things. And Isaiah puts it this way, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. Which includes you and I. And part of the process, as it was in those days, is that the people were expected to prepare themselves. So this is something I want to throw out there. I know today is cold, and we kvetch. And for me, um, you know, my, my Tel Aviv jeans kick in. Uh, I'm not a great fan of, of uh, this northern weather. Um, but my goal, my expectation is to come and meet with God here and to, to come to worship Him, as I hope is everybody's goal and expectation here. And yes, you're seeing uh, a, a room with a relatively low ceiling and you're seeing uh, people with our imperfections. But it is my fervent hope and my challenge to you that each Shabbat before you come, that you prepare yourself, you prepare your heart, and you say, I am coming to worship the King of Kings, the Master of the Universe. Then yes, we celebrate by singing and dancing and, and we have the Torah service and hear from whoever is presenting the Word of God. But this is not about us, the humans, or, or, or the physical limitations. It's about God himself who is capable and willing and eager to spend time with you and I individually and also corporately. Prophet Isaiah puts it this way, the Lord in Isaiah chapter 57 says, thus says the Lord, Adonai Tzvaot, the master of the universe, who dwells in a high and lofty place. I dwell, let me see if I can find it here real quick. Okay. Um, who dwell in, in a lofty place and with those of contrite and broken heart to revive those who need to be revived. And this is God's commitment to you and I as it was back in the time of Noah, uh, the, the time of Moses, rather. Um, the Lord said to Moses the following at the tent, at the entrance to the tent of the meeting, I will meet with you and I will speak to you. There I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. Now, at this point, we don't see a cloud. We, we don't see uh, supernatural manifestations like the people of Israel did. However, our prayer is that every single Shabbat, everyone who walks through these doors will experience the reality of the presence of God and will be changed because we have all been in the presence of God. So here in this scenario, you find that the, um, 
the, the Levites and the priests prepared themselves, and it was a big party. Um, in the beginning of the section, actually, if you were to go to verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12, all the Levites who were musicians, and the Hebrew word mishorarim can refer to singers or those who played instruments, they stood on the east side of the altar dressed in fine linens and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. Now those were, according to Numbers chapter 10, those were the silver trumpets. But if you can imagine and use sanctified visualization here, I know that's a dirty word for some folks. But if you use sanctified imagination, think of roughly 300 people, 300 musicians playing together, um, praising God. How, how do we know it was 300? Because we're told in, in uh, First Chronicles um, chapter 25, let me see if I can find, yeah, chapter 25, that the total number of musicians were 288. Think about it. 288 musicians, uh, according to this v- verse in, in our passage, 120 of them were trumpet players. So the rest were singers and um, uh, playing cymbals and, trump- and, and harps and lyres and so on. And they did that. Now, what is especially amazing is they did that in unity. Th- almost 300 Israelites doing something in unity. You know, as the saying goes, you have two Jews, you have three opinions, and etc. They were in unity. Verse 13, the trumpets and singers joined in unison as in one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. The word for a unity or unison here is echad, which means corporate unity. In other words, uh, something made up of a number of parts being together as a unit. So they pulled out all the stops to praise God. And by the way, here, there are two Hebrew words for praise, lehalel uh, and lehodot. And let me just take a moment and talk about those. Lehalel uh, is the word from which we get hallelujah. And that refers to praising God with a great deal of joy and, and ecstasy and so on, dancing. Um, the other word, lehodot, is a word that has to do with confession. In other words, proclaiming who God is. So think about it. Every Shabbat when we recite the Shema, it talks about loving the Lord our God with all our mind, heart, and soul, strength, etc., which means that what we bring to God, we bring holistically out of our mind, our emotions, and our will. And that's what we have uh, here in this situation. Lehalel has to do with rejoicing. Lehodot has to do with confessing, uh, stating who God is. You have to have both the tone, the joy, and you have to have the content. One without the other is insufficient. So what was the content? They simply said, He is good. His love endures forever. 
כי טוב לעולם חסדו. Very simple. And by the way, this phrase appears 41 times in Scripture. הודו לאדוני כי טוב, כי לעולם חסדו. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his mercy, his chesed, his long suffering endures forever. Why is it so uh, repeated? Why is it repeated so many times? Well, think about it. Well, first of all, what is good, tov? Uh, that's a fairly general word that has to do with good, okay? All right, you say, can you be more specific? Well, yes and no. Uh, the implication is that there's nothing bad about God, okay? Um, and he is like that, le'olam, which means... Not just today or tomorrow, the day after, indefinitely, but eternally. Um, unlike the rest of us who are good and gracious on a given moment, but then somebody looks at us crosswise and we begin to uh, turn and are no longer good, but rather foul. And I'm not speaking about anybody here in particular. Um, he is good. His chesed, his covenant committed loyal love is endures forever. And that is why we celebrate, folks. Let me make a basic statement that if you know and understand God's mercy and God's grace, you will be able then to give and extend God's mercy and God's grace to others. To put it negatively, it's been my experience that the people who are graceless and unwilling to forgive are people who have truly not learned the grace and mercy of God and have not understood how much God has forgiven them. When you understand how much God has forgiven you, how merciful he is to you, it causes your heart to melt because you realize that God is justified in nuking you for all kinds of reasons. And yet he backs up and, and gives you opportunities again and again and again. We had a Thanksgiving meal uh, at our house and uh, one of the members of the family, extended family, came and gave thanks to God because he is the God of second and third chance. And if you understand that, it will cause you to be soft-hearted towards other people who have done you dirt. If you don't understand the mercy and grace of God, you will hold that bitterness regardless of how justified you feel the only thing you can do is release that and and forgive what i you know what i find intriguing is that our secular culture is beginning to get it about the value the virtue of forgiveness and thanksgiving it's godless in other words it has nothing to do with god in people's minds their attitude is this is good for you 
It's good for self-development. It's good for self-actualization. It's good for self-health, etc. Self, 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 more self. But and by the way, there was a um, a study done in California uh, by neuroscientists who took people and hooked them up to an MRI and uh, asked them to interact with um, images of Holocaust survivors, Shoah survivors, who talked about how they were immensely grateful for the kindness shown to them by non-Jews who gave them food and protected them. And the people who were hooked up to the MRI were shown these images and the scientists were able to localize a, sp a specific spot in the brain that, that flashed because of this connection. What does that tell you? Simply that uh, gratitude is something that is God's principle and whether we connect gratitude and forgiveness with God or not, it still works. Obviously, it doesn't work fully without the connection with the Lord. But this is something that our general culture understands. And by the way, this is where we can mil uh, make bridges with people who don't know Yeshua by talking about things that are common to us, such as forgiveness and gratitude. By the way, I was delighted this year not to, not to hear about Turkey Day. That always causes me to, um, uh, my nostrils to flare up. So here you have the people bringing in the ark, and you have the Levites and priests blowing the, the, the trumpets and singing and, and, and playing with cymbals and harps and lyres. And as they are doing that, not a second before that, as they're doing that, the temple of the Lord is filled with a cloud. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I found that uh, incredibly uh, intriguing that God comes, God's presence comes and fills the temple, and by the way, this will happen again at a different at a different point. But God's presence comes and fills the temple as as the people are worshiping. Um, what does that suggest? It simply suggests that when we want God to show up, that what Scripture tells us that we need to do is that we need to celebrate, we need to give thanks and express gratitude to Him and praise Him. It's not mechanistic. It's, we do that by faith. We find that, for example, with Jehoshaphat in, in 2 Chronicles 20, that they're facing all these awful people that are about to come down on them like a ton of bricks, the Ammonites and, and the other ites, and they sing and give thanks, and they say, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And that, at that point is when God rolls up His sleeves and gets to work visibly 
and, and routs Israel's enemies. God's presence comes in a major way on a number of occasions in history. The book of Acts, for instance, when the people gathered and they prayed and they sought the Lord, the house was shaken and the people were filled with the Spirit of God and they spoke the Word of God boldly. Now, for some of us, worship comes almost naturally. There's something in us that just wants to worship God. For others of us, worship is something that is a steep learning curve. You know, we relate to God cognitively, intellectually, as we read the Word of God. And so worship, rejoicing, and so on, is something that we really need a lot of help. And I, for one, am blessed that we have this wonderful group of musicians and dancers to help those of us who are somewhat um, undeveloped. I was going to say retarded, but... <laughs> the short version is we come, we do that in our little closet where it is that we pray... And I trust that this is something that is part of your personal discipline that you take that time to sit down with the Word of God and to sit down and sing and pray and, and talk to God as well as here when we come together corporately. And by faith, by faith, simple childlike faith, we come expecting that God will show up. You can say, well, there's really no reason in the book why he should do that. You know, the Middle East is going up in flames and Europe is going up in flames and the United States is not in great shape and, and uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria and so on and so forth. God is busy. And who am I? Just a little sliver of humanity. But for some reason that is unexplainable to us, God cares. Let me recite the verse again that I mentioned earlier. For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So... Are you in a place where you need reviving? Where there are circumstances in life that cause you to be lowly of heart, but the Word of God says that He is eager to dwell with you, to revive you. And that comes through Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for us isn't just one day out of 365, but rather Thanksgiving for us is 365 out of 365. In all things, give thanks. Good, bad, and ugly. I don't believe that God expects us necessarily to say, Lord, I'm sick and my back is hurting 
and I just lost work. Thank you, Lord, for the back pain I'm experiencing and for the loss of work and for people being nasty. I, I don't see that, that the Lord expects us to give thanks for the pain, and you might disagree with me. Um, I know that um, Corrie ten Boom did that. She's up here somewhere. Um, but in the very least, you say, thank you, God, for the things that you do through the pain, through the bad circumstances, what, what you accomplish in me through those difficult times. I give thanks. And by faith, I worship you, and I depend on you to come and revive me so that I can worship you further. Let's pray. Lord, we stand before you. We're amazed. We're amazed, Lord God, that you who dwell in a high and lofty place, that you choose to dwell with us who are lowly, and contrite and that your desire is to revive us and Lord each one of us in our own way in our own circumstances we need to be revived we need to be strengthened Lord God to be fully empowered to do to do your will to carry out the commission that you have for each one of us to do so Lord God we ask for the soft hearts that we need, Lord God, to be able to come and to give thanks and to make that a habit and a lifestyle, Lord God, where we learn to give thanks for who you are, for who you are in our life, for the things that you do. We thank you, Abba Father, that you lavish your love upon us that we should be called your children. We pray, Lord God, for that amazing truth lord god to be to burrow deeply within us lord god to lodge deeply within us um at the core of our being at at at, at our dna lord god that we would understand who you are who who you desire to be in our life and that we would simply open our hearts and give you thanks we ask all this, Lord, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.